0: Listening to the Rude Horror Podcast with your host Marcus Rude.
1: Hello, everybody! Listening to the Rude Horror Podcast. I'm Marcus Rude, and today I have a special guest with me today. He is a writer and director, Mr. Courtney Joyner. How are you doing today, Courtney?
2: Oh. In, in isolation, but, uh, yes, muddling through. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, I, I should say in masked creation, I guess.
1: Right, right. These are some strange times indeed.
2: Indeed. and uh, But uh, everybody who's, uh, you know, gets to, you know, create and, be home and and all that stuff. Uh, really, we're we're counting our blessings because uh, we're uh, there are lots of folks who are having a lot of problems now, and so far, fortunately, I'm I'm not one of them, but I'm very grateful for that.
1: Right, right, yeah. I know a lot of a lot of people are suffering over this. Um, so do you, do you go by Courtney or Court?
2: Oh, the, you know, well, my sisters always called me Court, but, uh, yeah, I'm fine with, with both. Oh. Lots of folks truncate the name just so to save a syllable. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, uh, well, man, uh, I was looking at, at your catalog and, uh, you've written like quite a few, uh, full moon films and like empire pictures. Oh yeah. And, uh, and directed, uh one of them or kind of kind of a couple they kind of spliced um like a uh, lurking fear mixed with like some other movies they're, they're trying to you know full moon's trying to make uh, um some some more stuff with like older movies and kind of splicing them together
2: Oh yeah well yeah I actually directed two for full moon I did Trancers and then also lurking fear and right. Uh, Then uh, uh, they started this whole thing of kind of reissuing the movies, but in cut down versions. And they made these weird little anthologies of uh, like 25, 30 minute versions of the films. And actually, the first time they did it, it was called Tomb of Terror or something uh, I was a little excited because I thought, "Wow, this is like the you know Castle Films two uh, hundred foot version of uh, Lurking Fear." So I thought it was like this very cool throwback to my Super Eight days. But uh, nah, it wasn't.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, at least at least we got the the actual movie to to fall back on and watch, and uh, you know, I I really liked Lurking Fear. I thought it was like a um. You know, like around that time frame, like there's like Castle Freak and like uh, I think Bleeders. I don't know if that was a full moon movie or not, but like sort of had like the same sort of creatures going on, and uh, and then like uh, Jeffrey Combs, obviously in Lurking Fear, and then Castle Freak. Like when I when I watched those films, like it kind of like was like like uh. Like is this like a similarity here, or is it just like Full Moon just trying to make, you know, a, a bunch of movies, uh, just, you know, all all together? And uh, I don't know, but I I really liked uh, Lurking Fear, how it had a different, uh, you know, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, like it's it's a different. I put your
2: question in here someplace.
1: <laughs> yeah, sorry. I'm kind of rambling here a little bit. <laughs>
2: um,
1: but, uh, so you, I, well, let me, let me start over here.
2: <laughs> okay.
1: Um. So, I mean, I'm, I'm jumping to Lurking Fear, but, uh, but you directed Trancer, Tramp, oh my God, I can't even talk, Trancers 3 first yeah, before, before Lurking Fear. Mm-hmm and 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 you wrote in and, and directed that one, so what well, what was it like? Um, i guess I guess my question is how did you um, land land the job of of both writing and directing for that film?
2: Well, you know I've always believed in like having a home base, and my history with Charlie band goes back to prison, and so uh. After Empire Folded and Charlie started new companies, I went off and I was doing writing other movies uh, like Class of 1999, for example, and movies like that. And then I started to do some network television and stuff. And I came back uh, into Charlie's Fold uh, purely by accident because uh, one afternoon a friend of mine was going down for an audition at Full Moon, and uh, he was an actor, and he said, hey, why don't you come along? And so I did. It was a Friday, and I didn't have anything to do. And so I went down, and it was great. It was like this instant reunion. I saw Charlie. I saw Albert. And Charlie started talking about, about writing something. And he knew I was doing kind of these bigger movies at that time and working for Canon and Warner Brothers in different places. And so anyway, the first thing he asked me to work on, we, we made a three-picture deal and at uh, this time, Full moon had just scored a very good deal at Paramount. So they had some nice pockets, and uh, you know, we're spending a little bit of money. and he had a very interesting slate, lots of stuff going on. So the first thing they had me write was uh, Puppet Master 3. And after that, that turned out very well. And Dave Dakota did a great job, and the thing was really, really successful. Uh, and Paramount loved it. And then they had me do Dr. Mordred. And that did very well. And um, people were very pleased with that. That was really my first time of working with Jeff Combs. And then the subject came up of me writing uh, trancers. And Charlie was very, very, well, he co-directed Dr. Mordred with his dad. And uh, but Charlie was very, very busy running the company. And didn't know if, in fact, he would be able to direct Trancers 3. I had already made a movie with Tim Thomerson called Vietnam, Texas. And Mm -hmm. we had just gotten along just so great. He just turned out to be one of my best friends, which he is to this day. And so Tim went in to Charlie. He said, look, Courtney wants to direct. He's talked to you about it, which I had. Let's have him do Trancers. Albert Band said, yes, that's great. I will produce the thing. I'll be with him and let's give him uh, the shot. And Charlie was kind enough to say, okay, and that's how it happened. I mean, that was always kind of the thing, you know, Marcus, when you're with companies like that where they had to deliver a great deal of product and it's like an assembly line, but that also meant that there were opportunities. And if you were important within the structure of the company or you were reliable or you had done a lot of work or whatever you want to say, then, you know, sometimes opportunities would open up. And that was the situation here. I had. Been involved with a couple of movies that had done well for Full Moon. And so this was kind of the natural uh, progression. But I was very lucky to get Trancers because that was one of their major franchises. Mm -hmm. And uh, then as the film was taking shape and we were shooting uh, out at Steve Cannell's old studios. And I was able, uh, Andy Robinson was a good friend of mine. And his wife, in fact, was my agent. Oh, wow. And so I asked Andy if he would play the bad guy. I had no idea he would say yes. And he did just because he liked me and he was being extraordinarily kind. But there <laughs> I was on my first film doing a Transers movie with Tim Thomerson and the bad guy from Dirty Harry. I don't think he could do any better than that. And then also, you know, I went to uh, high school with Greg Nicotero. And so k and B, I I mean, they were really on their way and the Academy Award nominations and all that. I don't know if they'd won an Oscar yet, but they were, you know, way, way beyond doing uh, things for uh, direct-to-video companies. And uh, But I asked Greg if they would help me on uh, trancers, and they did. They designed Shark, and they did all those incredible uh, trancing makeups for everybody, including the great uh, bladder work uh, on Dawn Ann Billings and uh no it was uh it was spectacular and charlie got helen hunt to come back and so it just all fell together it was uh it was terrific it was a great experience
1: wow yeah yeah definitely was a you know like a a staple for the trans Transers uh franchise well uh, we
2: tried some things you know and again because Transers uh traditionally it had uh more stars in them you know charlie you know richard hurd and Ann seymour and all these people from the very first film and mm-hmm. then when charlie did Re- transfers to richard lynch and who i of course made a movie with Martin beswick who's a good friend so they always wanted to if you will the cast were always like recognizable
0: mm-hmm.
2: and that was the same situation here with me i mean i inherited dawn and billings and uh Uh, Telma Hopkins and Megan Ward and Helen and all these and then I brought in uh, uh, Andy and we had um, Tony Pierce from dances with wolves and I mean it was wonderful
1: Yeah, for sure, man For sure. Yeah, I uh, I had a chance to meet Andrew Robinson um, a couple years ago at a a Chicago convention and he, he seemed like such a really cool guy and uh, he was there for the uh, the Hellraiser um, reunion, or the you know, there's multiple people that are involved in Hellraiser were there. So uh, you well, know, I
2: I was actually at Andy's house uh, for a little party, a little dinner party before we left for England to to make Hellraiser. So I remember that night very very well. And little did I know, of course, uh, it was so great that Andy agreed to be in this movie. And then in my second movie, I had Ashley Lawrence. So I got Hellraiser all over the place.
1: Right, yeah. I was going to say, uh, uh, yeah, you got Ashley Lawrence for Lurking Fear. And uh, and yeah, and she actually, uh, I thought, played like, you know, like a really kick-ass, like heroine type lady. And lurking fear. I mean, she she sort of plays that in Hellraiser, but uh, she really seemed like she really took action in Lurking Fear.
2: Well, she did, and now she was terrific. But of course, the thing is, when uh, she did my movie, she was older, and mm. she didn't have all you know the hair and all that stuff. You know, she didn't she didn't look like that little girl anymore. Right, and so uh when she came to Romania, and uh, I thought it was terrific to have her. She was a, she's a great person. And But she really got into, uh, she worked really well with the stunt coordinators. And she got into the whole thing with the armorers, le- learning how to use weapons. And uh, all these things that really just had not come up yet in a lot of the movies and the projects she had done. So she was having a ball uh, with that stuff, and uh, and I think uh, that that just kind of brought everything up, uh, if you will, uh, in her performance because uh, she got to kick down doors and do things that uh, she normally didn't get the chance to do.
1: <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um. um. sorry for for the pause here i'm trying to think of i i might i might jump around a little bit um if you don't mind like no no
0: things. sure <laughs> uh,
1: so uh well one thing that, that kind of caught my eye i uh i looked up uh your imdb and i seen in some of your acting credits that uh you acted as a uh, zombie and dawn of the dead from 1978
2: that is and true that,
1: and that that happens to be probably one of my favorite films of all time so it was it was kind of a kind kind of a, a cool little tidbit info to to find out about you uh, yeah
2: i i'm trying to remember how i we found out that they needed the zombies out at Monroeville mall it was during the winter time and um i I can't, it may have been an, it, was an, it wasn't an ad in the paper, but it was kind of like a general call for extras for Romero's movie. And uh, of course, I was so excited and went out and we were filming. And the thing was that there was a big uh, snow, there was a big blizzard uh, that week. And so there was a big, there was a problem with getting people to consistently be there. I mean, there are a lot of people, but, you know, they'd be there one night and not the next and what have you. So, uh, and I was, yeah, I was, what, 17 or whatever I was when when I did that. And I was in a, uh, I was in a couple of scenes. I was, uh, they had me in a doctor's lab coat and I was in the scene where we attacked uh, JCPenney. And in fact, that still, uh, everybody pressed up against the glass of mm-hmm. the uh, at the shopping mall, that's me in the glasses. Oh wow! Right there on the left-hand side, and in fact, that that image is on the back of the old vinyl soundtrack album. So I've always kind of, <laughs> yeah, you know, there's a bit of pride. And they oh, gave wow. me a nurse, uh, and she was dragging a toaster along. I remember that. But uh, you know, then we would come back, and then they actually put a mustache on me to have me be another zombie. Crawling up a ladder and I was trying to grab one of the, I don't know, Scott Reniger, one of those guys' legs. I can't remember which one. And just because, again, people were finding it difficult because of the snow and the weather to get out there. And uh, they had me work. Everybody was kind of, I remember uh, uh, Rubenstein, uh, Richard and his wife were were there and they were, uh, I think they're the ones who were painting us gray. Uh, cause everybody was just pitching in as best they could. And, uh, I've been fooling around with super eight movies and things like that. So, and I uh, was interested in special effects. So they had me, uh, for an evening or two work with Gary Zeller, who was doing all the, uh, you know, onset explosive effects, really just carrying his toolbox around and, you know, helping him wire up some, uh, bullet hits and things. But, uh, no, it was, it was great, but everybody, but just really, it was just the chance to, of course I was on camera a few times, but mostly it was a chance to stand back and watch the motorcycles go up and down the escalators and all that stuff. And, uh, uh, I was there when the guy flipped off the motorcycle into the fountain and everything. So that was, that was a lot of fun. It was neat. And yeah, of course, nobody knew it would turn into what it turned into.
1: Right. Right. Man, that's incredible. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I love like all of the, uh, the uh, Romero franchise as far as like the Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, um, uh, but for some reason, uh, Dawn just always, just kind of floats to the top for me.
2: Uh, well, I'll tell you something really bizarre. Well, not, it's not that bizarre. It's just interesting in retrospect. Uh, Greg and Catero's brother. Uh, had a party, and we all went. And Greg was okay. Greg's best friend was the little brother of my best friend, and you know he's a few years younger than I am. And uh, God, at this time maybe he was like twelve or thirteen. But you know we're driving cars and stuff, so you know that four years makes a big difference. And so we're all standing around drinking beer out of a keg or something. And Greg goes, oh, come on up and look what I'm doing. So I went up to his room and he is, you know, he's a kid and he is showing me these sculptures and these makeup appliances and stuff that he was doing. It was, it was unbelievable how skilled he was. Wow. And I'm standing and going, Jesus. And he knew that I had just been an extra in Dawn of the Dead uh, somebody had told him, so he was grilling me about Tom Savini and, you know, did I steal some, uh, bullet hits and could he have one? I remember that conversation And I know I didn't, I didn't steal any, and no, he couldn't have any, uh, but, uh, he, he just so zeroed in because he so admired Tom. And of course, uh, in just a, you know, two years later, he was working side by side with, uh, Savini on day of the dead, but, um, yeah, it was it was really amazing. Uh, he was so young, and the quality of the work and everything else. And he was showing me all the, you know, of course he's just saying, "Hey, look at what I've been doing here," and showing me all the sketches and and everything else. And it was uh, really just uh, fantastic. And I was just like, "Wow, we," I mean, he was a prodigy.
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, he he still to this day is. Uh doing you know some important special effects for for a lot of stuff Creep you know like the new creep show on shutter
2: well of course um, he produces the show
1: yeah yeah and
2: and the show. that helps
1: <laughs> yeah so yeah he's he's still doing a lot of uh kick-ass stuff for you know in the horror genre
2: oh god yes
1: So uh, that's amazing that, that you know them too. Like, you know, you you guys go way back.
2: Well, we're just all a bunch of Pittsburgh knuckleheads.
1: (laughs) Man, that's awesome. So, um, so I guess I might jump to 1987 was a pretty big year for you. Um, you've written, uh, a few, uh, horror like I don't know like the co-wrote or written a, a few horror movies from that came out around 1987 um like from a whisper to a scream with uh, Vincent price
2: oh yeah and,
1: it, and that that one's sort of like a horror anthology right yes mm-hmm. okay yeah I you know that that's one that i haven't seen yet but i was watching trailers earlier earlier tonight and i'm like man i i need to watch this cuz this looks pretty interesting
2: and and it is you have my guarantee
1: <laughs> yeah some some of the special effects looks pretty cool and uh and i you know i didn't realize it was a horror anthology till i, I started reading into it and it's like oh man I'm I'm surprised this uh, that I missed this one.
2: And yeah uh, Barney Burnham did the effects.
1: Wow. Yeah I, I definitely will have to to check that one out. Um so like what uh I guess what was like the first horror movie that that you had written what was that the, the first one or was it Prisoner?
2: And no, Prison, uh, well, that was, it was kind of, those kind of happened at the same time. Um, Whisper to a Scream, AKA The Offspring, uh, happened when when Jeff Burr and Darren Scott and I all got out of uh, USC. Uh, Jeff was doing some work over at uh, Corman's. Darren actually went in the business sector. I was over at Universal uh, TV. With a director named Virgil Vogel and I was working on uh, Airwolf and shows like that and we we of course wanted to try and do some features and Jeff had formed a production company it was him and Darren and his and Jeff's brother Bill and it was a limited partnership yeah those were the days when you could raise money for tax shelters and, of course, everybody was doing indie horror because of the success of Halloween and Friday the 13th and all that stuff. And the, the genre just exploded. And VHS had just come into its own. So VHS money was just raining from the sky. So there are tons of distributors and tons of opportunity. And we decided Jeff. I had written a uh, feature length script called The Nightcrawlers that Jeff and I had tried to get made. And, and it never happened. And so, but I, it was a good writing sample. In fact, that's the sample Irwin Yablons read when he hired me to write *Prison*. But uh, for the offspring, Jeff and uh, his brother Bill and Darren went and raised the money independently, and a lot of it came from uh, Dalton, Georgia, which was Jeff's hometown. And they were his parents and business associates of his parents. And we were going back and forth and decided to do a uh, anthology rather than a feature, just because just around us, we saw too many features that had never been completed. We knew a lot of people who had started features and ran out of money, and then what do you do? Uh-huh. You know sometimes you can get the finishing funds and sometimes you can't. So the idea behind doing the anthology always was, that if at any point during the shooting we ran out of money, we would have something that was complete unto itself to show. Right. So, okay, we don't have the money to finish it, but we did finish this 20 minutes, which is a full story. In this 20 minutes, it's a full story. So that was the whole approach and the reasoning. Also, too, uh, by doing it with things that would, you know, each episode was shot in a week, was scheduled for a week, then that meant higher we could hire actors only for a week and that kept the cost down so you would get name we would get names
1: right
2: for a week uh, Vincent price we knew I knew clue Gulliger from college I had uh, sought clue out uh, because I did a documentary when I was at USC on the director Don Siegel and got to know Don and uh, anyway we we kept in touch and I introduced clue uh, Jeff to clue and clue was of course, uh, always teaching, uh, and had his great acting class, which he still does. And so he was always very supportive of young actors and things. And the director, Steve Carver, this is so bizarre. Cause I just did a book with Steve. Uh, I got to know when I was got out of college, uh, and through a character actor, we both knew, uh, LQ Jones. And so through Steve, Jeff and I met Terry Kaiser. And, you know, so we kind of like all these, these wonderful actors. Uh, Cameron Mitchell, we just approached out of the blue, went went down and met with him in Palm Springs. But Harry Caesar, for example, who was in uh, the Swamp episode that Darren Scott wrote, Jeff and I sat behind Harry at a DJ uh, memorial ceremony for Robert Aldrich. Hmm. And so we're like, oh, my God, there's Harry Caesar. So we talked to Harry and he's like, so yeah, I'd like to be in your movie. You know, so we kind of assembled everybody (laughs) this way. And um, then um, we uh, the movie was made in Georgia. And, uh, you know, Rosalind Cash, she was another one. We got through a friend of uh, Steve's, the director, Oscar Williams, uh, five on the black hand side. And so that was kind of, you know, we kind of played connected dots with the folks that we knew or were getting to know, and we were extremely lucky to assemble that cast. And then once all the stories were shot, uh, we had approached Vincent Price with the project initially, uh, just went up to his house. We got his, Jeff got his address from one of those uh, old celebrity address services that used to exist a million years ago, and we knocked on his front door.
1: Oh, my God.
2: He was very gracious. He was very nice. He was baking bread. I remember that. Invited <laughs> us in. We told him what we wanted to do. And he wasn't that interested. He uh, he had just done Mystery with Diana Rigg. And he had done the Monster Club. You know, the Chetwin Hayes anthology. Uh, right. With Vincent Price. Or uh, rather with John Carradine. And Roy Ward Baker directed it. He didn't think it had turned out particularly well. And so... He really gave us a very gentle, no, thank you. But what we were able to do, it was really was Jeff's brother, Bill and Jeff, uh, not me. But what they were able to do was to get Vincent to hold off on a final decision uh, until we had shot the episodes and he could take a look at them and then decide if he wanted to be in the connecting device. Oh, wow. And so we go off, they make the movie come back put uh, some things together and this one of the episodes he saw was the clue Gullher and he also saw the swamp episode uh with uh Terry Kaiser and Harry Caesar and the clue Guoliher with um uh, Terry Knox and so we um uh, that was screened for him and then we made the deal and he shot for uh you know what was it two days or a day and a half I can't remember Maybe it was just one day. I honestly, I can't remember how many days we had. I think it was two.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And uh, yeah, Lawrence Tierney was an old friend of mine, and Martine Beswick, of course, came in uh, as you know she was a dear friend, and David Delval helped. One of the things that uh, was great was while we were shooting, we shot down at uh, Roger Corman's studio, and I remember Roger. Uh, this is the old Hammond Lumberyard, and we had this decaying set uh where vincent price was the librarian at this town librarian and susan tyrell comes in to interview him and everything and uh it was a beautiful set but lots of cobwebs and decay and what have you and roger corman comes in he's looking at the set and i'm standing next to him and he goes you know i think i've made this movie about 20 times It's <laughs> <was> like, yeah, <laughs> you have but they had a wonderful reunion and uh, David Valle brought Hazel Court down as well. So while we were shooting, we wanted Vincent Price to feel as comfortable as possible. And that helped a great deal because he got to have a reunion with his old friends.
1: That's awesome. That's awesome. Man. Yeah, definitely some big names in that movie. And, uh, you know, I'm I'm kind of kicking myself in the in the butt for not seeing it yet
2: (laughs) well Um, you know and again it was a first film we were feeling our way i think jeff did a great job and it was uh you know there are lots of mistakes but also too uh because we didn't know any better sometimes that means you you hit on wondrous things Uh, Because you're not inhibited or you have the experience of, well, I know that won't work. We didn't know what wouldn't work. So we kind of went for everything and uh, we ended up with some uh, great stuff.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, it's just it's in our our nature to just learn as we go.
2: Yeah. And that was our learning as we go. Sure. And while uh, Offspring was being made... I had been hired to write Prison by Irwin and Bruce Cone Curtis, and that's when I met Rennie Harlan and all that stuff, and then that movie took off to its own thing, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that one was the uh, Empire Pictures, I
2: think, right? Yeah. It, it was, but uh, it had started as an indie production. Uh, actually, it was going to be uh, produced by Dino De DeLorentis.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And... Uh, the, the that didn't go through, and then we were going to be at Canon and different different outfits because Erwin uh, was coming in with the X number of dollars, uh, and of course you know I was Erwin thr- Yablons was just the greatest guy. I I kind of became his uh, uh, little protege there. He really was my mentor and wherever he went, uh, TWE and all these different companies. He always uh, you know had me go with him. And uh, I would end up writing a movie. That's how I got class in 1999 because Irwin uh, brought me to Mark Lester.
1: Oh man, yeah, I definitely want to uh, talk about that one in a little bit because that one is actually one of my uh, one of my favorites as well. Um, but like, yeah, yeah, prison. Um, this prison was different because it didn't really. Feel like an Empire Pictures type movie. Uh, you know, like, uh, you know, like Trancers. And, uh, you know, it didn't really have, I mean, it had fantasy elements, but like really dark. Well, like really dark, you know.
2: The production situation on Prison was very similar to the situation on Reanimator in that it did all originate outside of the company. Okay. And so. Erwin, you know, who had a long history with Charlie because his company had distributed *Parasite* and things like that uh, way back when. So when he came in with *Prison*, you know, money was already involved. So it really was a distribution deal, and Erwin was uh, had many things had already been locked in, Uh, and then Empire stepped in and, and did the completion, and we did all the casting through Empire and. What have you. And, uh, you know, of course, uh, Mac Allberg had, uh, you know, naturally he'd already worked for Irwin because he shot Hell Knight. And, uh, uh, you know, he was, uh, you know, of course, Charlie's go to guy. Mac was great. God, what a talented guy he was and a really nice guy, too. And, of course, since uh, he and uh, Rennie both uh, had, you know, Norwegian backgrounds uh you know they got along like a just tremendously well
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and so it was no it was it was terrific and but i think that i know what you're saying but i think it's because the script was developed and all these other things were developed completely outside of empire and then the whole project kind of was brought to charlie as as you know do you want to get involved with this thing and help us uh, carry it forward but uh the script phase and who was going to direct it and all that, all that stuff had been done.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. It, uh, it definitely had, uh, had its moments of like, uh, you know, really cool looking special effects. And, uh, and, uh, it, you know, and then you, you, get to see a young Viggo Moritzon in it. And, uh, oh, yeah. You know, and then, you know, he would go on to, to do, like, Lord of the Rings and stuff. And uh, so it's really cool just, to kind of see almost, like, his career take off from, from there. And then, like, uh, uh, I think the other one was, like, Texas Chainsaw 3,
2: um, you know. Oh, and, you know, Green Book and, you know, on and on and on it goes, Hidalgo and uh, History of Violence and... You know, Vigo's had a spectacular career. He's a very, very nice guy. And um, uh, it was, no, it was, it was, it was a great experience. Rennie and I uh, ended up uh, moving in together. We rented a house uh, up uh, in the Hollywood Hills. So that was fun. And Mm -hmm. we were, uh, and of course, prison is what got Rennie Nightmare on Elm Street and I worked on that a little bit, but it was um, it was neat, it was a great time. And when uh, writing the script, we originally w- were trying to find a, a uh, prison here in California that would allow us to film. And we were looking at like city jails and things like that and nothing really was appropriate. And then we found uh, this location in Rollins, Wyoming, one of the last standing territorial prisons in the country and uh, Rennie and Irwin and I flew out there, and it was uh, it was absolutely spectacular. I mean, it was literally exactly what I had written. And We added some things to it, some uh, gun towers and things like that, but uh, it was it was just tremendous. So we found everything that we needed right there. And all of the interiors, Chelsea Field's uh, motel room, and uh, lane smith's office all that stuff was all uh was all built there in the prison itself it's actually built in the gymnasium
1: oh wow so like uh was the like the outside like the yard was it all that
2: that was there the, with... that was that was the actual facility
1: oh wow yeah there's some some uh pretty good scenes in there you know like prison scenes <laughs> like it you know it, it looked like a legit prison so it's kind of cool to know that it, it actually was like
2: well and you know all the extras were from the actual federal prison uh, penitentiary down the road oh really and uh rhino the rather large beard bearded uh inmate who is uh in the cell with the young uh, uh handsome uh dark-haired kid who was Irwin son by the way Hmm. Rhino was actually in, he was incarcerated in the federal penitentiary for second-degree murder. Wow. But he had his SAG card. And the thing was, he had been a stuntman in the miniseries Centennial, which was shot there in Wyoming. One night out on the town, he got into a fight with a guy in a bar and uh, killed him, hit him with a bottle or something. And uh, the thing was, the guy was uh, rather high ranked at the local, uh, at the Indian reservation, private Cheyenne. And so it mm-hmm. turned into kind of a political thing. Uh, and so they really threw the book at him. And he was, uh, when he was not acting, he had to be sh- shackled, his ankles were shackled his hands were cuffed, and there was a man there with an automatic rifle all the time.
1: Wow. Yep. Wow, I had no idea. <laughs> That's crazy, man.
2: Yep, that was. Um, but he was very good in the movie, and uh, I talked to him quite a bit. I lo- and I loved Lane Smith. Boy, he, what a great guy he was, and he was so good. And uh, actually, one of the people who did come in for the role of the warden was uh, uh, Erwin had spoken to John Cassavetes. And Rennie and I just would have loved that. We thought that was just such a great idea, but uh, his health was not good, and they were afraid about getting the uh, insurance on him. Mm. And so we we missed out on our chance to work with uh, John Cassavetes, but Lane was so... So great! In fact, I was watching him today in an episode of the Rockford Files, and uh, he was—boy, uh, he was a good guy. Yeah, yeah.
1: Like you know, I th- I thought you guys picked a good choice, jo- good choice having him on as the warden because like he, you know, he, he been, like I'm I'm sure he's not an asshole in real life, but he really did play a good asshole in <laughs> in the movie. Oh yeah. yeah.
2: And, and, you know, we had uh, Tom, Tom Everett, and uh, and this is just awful to talk about him in the past tense, is Larry Jenkins, because Larry just died this past year. I mean, it was such a shock. We had a reunion screening at the Egyptian Theater uh, just last year. Uh, Vigo sent a very sweet message. Of course, he couldn't, he was able to make it, but... It, it lots of uh, Richard band and I mean just all kinds of people came and uh Larry had arranged the whole thing and uh you know of course uh talk tell the tale of burning alive in the cell and all the rest of that stuff and uh yeah and then he died of a coronary about uh three months later
1: oh man that's too so, bad
2: it really was he was a he, he was great but uh Tom Lister you know tiny Lister in there and all these yeah it was uh, that was a lot of fun. We, um, and Chelsea field was a good friend. And so that was, um, no, it, uh, that was, that was good. And, you know, seeing I, I'm not somebody who actually sits around and watches their old movies very much, which sounds a little arrogant, I guess, or something bizarre. I'm not quite sure what, but, uh, uh, you know, I don't pull them off the shelf and, you know, sit in the dark and, you know, act like Gloria Swanson, uh, or I try not to, but, uh, when we had this, the reunion screening of prison, I hadn't seen the movie in quite a very long time. Years, a couple of, at least five years and, uh, six years. And again, I saw it in the theater and everything else. And it was in the theater. It was well attended and what have you. And I was like, wow, you know, this still, it looks wonderful. And, uh, it still really plays, and we've got these folks. So now everybody, of course, very excited because Vigo Mortensen such a gigantic star and all that stuff. But it was mm-hmm. it was fun to see it again and to see uh, uh, see that it uh, held up, uh, you know, pretty well. So I'm I was glad of that.
1: Right? Yeah, yeah. I thought it was a, a well made movie, and uh, you know, it's and I know like money and budget has something to do with it, but like I really miss. Um you know, how Full Moon used to make their movies. Like, I know now they're just, you know, it, their budget is like, it seems like it's smaller and smaller, but, uh, you know, back in like the late 80s, early 90s, you know, Full Moon for some reason um was kicking butt, man, as far as like the B movies were going. And then, I don't know, it just seemed like in the later years it just uh it's crumbling i don't know (laughs) that's that might sound bad but
2: you know well the thing is again we had the backing of a major studio we were being distributed by a major studio you know paramount was behind everything we were doing and there was there was a lot of free i mean again you know these are low budget movies that were for the direct to video market but um i remember when i was writing dr mordred and I was so turned on and, you know, the project had originated with Jack Kirby and everything. And I'm such a comic book head. But uh, I had this idea of uh, skeletons in a museum uh, having a fight. That that's what the two uh, warring wizards would use as weapons. Um, mm-hmm. There's like five W's in a row. And so I called Charlie and he... We were talking about how the script was going and I thought it was going very well, but I told him my idea because I said, Charlie, we're going to have, you know, the ability to do this because, uh, you know, if not, then, yeah, you know, I'll figure out something else. But I always tried very hard, at least when I was working for, for, for moon to create things or write things that were budget appropriate. Mm-hmm. And, Knowing John Beekler and knowing everybody who was going to work on the films, you know, we kind of had a collaborative situation where you you would find out what was really practically possible, and you wrote to that, or at least I did. And mm-hmm. yeah. but every once in a while, Charlie would say, "No, go ahead and just write it, and we'll figure it out." And of course, I did. And the next thing I knew, uh, you know, we're uh, collaborating very heavily with uh, the great David Allen. And um, I ended up th- th- with all that stop motion, because we had some stop motion in Puppet Master 3, but uh, nothing compared to Dr. Mordred. And so that's as close to uh, uh, me you know, being able to write a Ray Harryhausen movie, I guess, as I'll ever get, uh, certainly now. But uh, that, was, uh, that was great. And I was so thrilled that I- we ended up with having a real stop motion um, sequence in, uh, in that film. We had a couple, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, you know, it it was. Uh, um, I don't know. I don't know if if this word is right. Like a a piece of its time, because like a lot of full moon movies back then had had a a certain magic to it that uh, you know even even watching like nowadays looking back like you know looking past all of like the stop motion animation. You know, as far as like not being realistic, but there's just a certain magic to it. Just watching, and being like, man, like I miss, I miss those type of full moon movies, just because they have a charm to them.
2: Well, I think there's that, and there's also I remember, uh, you, you know, when, when uh, there was, it was a screening a Prison or something. I can't remember what it was, and uh, somebody started talking to me about the visual differences between B movies then. And what they see now on Amazon streaming and and that type of stuff. And you see some incredible things there. But I said, well, you know, here's the, I think this is what you're really perceiving, certainly for low budget movies, is everything we did was shot on film. And Uh it gives an entirely different feel. I think it's, not that I'm like anti-digital, but... I think the mind's eye perceives a difference, uh, certainly for for something like this, where the color feels richer and it's uh, just uh, kind of has more of a visual elegance to it. Uh, and it can be the cheapest movie ever made. It, you know, they, that's not necessarily a, a qualifying factor, but uh, I do think there's just something imperceptible that people see when they see those films from that era, and the fact that we were you know, shot with Panavision and all that. Plus, too, with Charlie and just like Roger Corman, they always, always used top-flight directors of photography, whether it was Mac Allberg or Adolfo Bartoli. Whoever it was, Charlie always went for a really great cameramen.
1: For sure, yeah. And, and you can... You can see that in in watching those movies, um, you know that you know uh, as time went on. I mean, a lot of a lot of people that worked on those films ended up, you know, doing some great things. Oh and, yeah, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know it 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 shows, man. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting seeing where. Uh, where full moon is going nowadays and uh you know like their new one uh corona zombies and uh oh what's well i guess uh i think aren't they uh, working on uh a off for blade in uh for the puppet master series
2: i believe they are yes you know these films are only a f- made for a fraction of the budgets that we used to have, but I'm always, uh, amazed. Uh, I thought, um, uh, the Ouija's, the one they did in Vegas, uh, mm-hmm. I was really impressed with that. Well, Shane Bitterling wrote a really funny script. It was really, and it was well executed and everything else by Danny Draven. So I was really impressed because I know they didn't have any money. So they just kind of went back to ingenuity and everything. And, uh, just uh, really, uh, that was that was neat. That was impressive. In fact, that quote-unquote The Deadly Ten, they pulled some script I wrote like over 20 years ago off the shelf, and that was going to be included. I don't know that it, in fact, is going to get made, uh, but that was uh, called The Grim Rapper. Hmm. And uh, Billy Butler... Was going to be directing it, and it was going to be a period piece. But I don't, I don't know. That was going to be the very last of the Deadly Ten uh, movies produced, and uh, that was before Corona and everything else hit. So I don't even know if uh, that program is going to continue. But um, yeah, it's it's amazing. You know, old Charlie boy. He just keeps he keeps plugging away. It just doesn't. Uh, uh, you know, big budget, low budget, no budget, in between budget, you name it, boy, uh, Charlie. <laughs> if he has a way to make the cameras turn, he's gonna make them turn.
1: For sure, for sure. And you know, that's that's what I like about him too. Is he he doesn't he doesn't give a shit. He'll just he'll go for it, whatever it is. And uh, you know, it always seems like he always just follows through with everything whatever he wants to pursue um but like speaking of like uh, blade puppet master um you've you've written uh, quite a few of the puppet master movies um i should i should say 3 of them uh puppet master 3 uh puppet master the legacy and puppet master versus demonic toys uh Could you maybe um, talk a little bit about how the writing process was like on some of those?
2: Well, Puppet Master 3, I was just very lucky that that was in the shoot. Charlie needed the script. I I remember this was right when we we made our new deal. Uh, They were filming Trancers 2. And I went down on the set and I saw Tim and we were talking for a while and then Charlie proposed, uh, we sat down for lunch and he said, look, I want to do uh, Puppet Master 3, but I want it to be a prequel to the first movie. And I was like, oh, okay. So suddenly my wheels started to click and I came up with this phrase and that was, some people got it, some people didn't. Where I said, "I want this should be the Where Eagles Dare of Puppet Master movies. And Dave Dakota laughed at that because he did what I wanted to do and what he wanted to do also was replicate the feel of those great World War II movies from the 60s that were always made at Pinewood Studios with like Donald Pleasants and Anton Differing as Nazis. And uh, so David would come over to my place and we'd watch Night of the Generals and Operation Crossbow and all these things and uh, kind of get into the rhythm of what we were going to do. And the thing was, Puppet Master 3 was, um, and I came up with the idea, of course, you know, what would you do with a reanimation fluid? Well, of course, it's to help, you know, on the Russian front and all these things with all these dead soldiers and get to use them a couple of times over.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So I followed that. I thought that was a great reason for uh, the puppets to come to life and the soul transference. I think it was a little nod to Frankenstein created woman there. Uh, but, um, the, the film was originally going to be the, one of the first films that Charlie's company was going, the full moon was going to make in uh, Eastern Europe in, in Romania. And, uh, this was before, uh, Ted Nicolau had gone over and all this was kind of happening simultaneously. I think Ted finally went over to do subspecies and did a fantastic job, Mm -hmm. but things got a little bollocks up and we couldn't go. I forget the reason why. So, so, And we just thought, oh, this will be so great to do a World War II film in Romania. So suddenly that's off the table. And it was Dave Dakota and John Schuweiler, absolutely, positively were the ones who made the arrangements for us to make that movie universal. I mean, it was incredible that they were able to pull that off.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And the next thing you knew... We were there uh in Frankenstein Village on the Universal backlot making that that was it was just a ball. Wow. And I'm such a you know I'm like running around going, "Oh my god, this is, you know, Lon Chaney Jr. did this here and Rondo Hatton did this there and this is where they did Captive Wild Woman and that's the train station from Night Monster." And I'm a real Universal head, so I was just going nuts. And Chuck Borden did those great stunts with uh uh, the general being, you know, uh, shot out of the window. And uh, it was just, it was just fantastic. Uh, and we had all those antique vehicles and what have you. And I remember Walter Gattel, who was the general, of course, uh, asked to speak to me about something. And I said, sure. And we sat down and he was, he was a great guy. And I was all about, you know, James Bond and everything. And uh, he's he said that I had, there was an address that the general gives his driver in the movie, and the street number was wrong. It was something, something Lieberstasser, and he said, the street does not extend that far, so it must be adjusted. So I was like, no, that's fine. You know, please, adjust it. But uh, no, that was, that. Was, he was he was terrific. And Guy Rolf, what a nice man he was. Uh, and it was just... It was just wonderful. Uh, And everybody was so, I think shooting at universal just gave everybody kind of an extra feeling of oomph because there was so much horror film history on absolutely every single place where we were filming. So everybody took that. It was like inspirational.
1: Yeah. Oh man, that's amazing. And, uh, uh, I kind of wanted to uh tie in like a question that I had that I was going to ask you later but you mentioned that your universal monsters like horror head uh what's your favorite universal monster
2: oh boy well my father was a doctor so I'm always been partial to uh the Frankenstein saga in any of its forms uh, obviously I watched one tonight that was Hammer oh. uh Columbia not universal uh but uh i i've always loved uh the wolfman saga and in fact i i i still think that frankenstein meets the wolfman is that and son of dracula the two best universal horror films of the 40s right on and uh yeah i i just love those films and again here we were making our movie on those sets
1: yeah that's awesome man
2: Yeah, that was really cool. That was really cool. You mentioned Puppet Master Legacy. There really wasn't very much to that. Um, All that was, was a, uh, Charlie called me up one day, and he said, look, I need to, something written very quickly, and I mean, literally, it was like in an afternoon, uh, to tie together film clips for this thing that we were putting together, kind of uh, chronological of the Puppet Master series, and there was a reason for somebody sitting down and watching all the movies. Or so I even forget what the setup was, because I I saw the thing for for a few moments. Uh, and that was it. But that's that's all that was. That was uh, just a quickie uh, job, because uh, they they I think they wanted uh, really, if you will, just kind of like a a record of the chronology of the Puppet Master stories. Uh, and then that would be, uh, you know, uh, uh, anyone who would do another Puppet Master movie could then pick it up from there, I guess.
1: Right. Almost like a recap of what's been Literally, happening. Yeah. 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 And then, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know how to, how too far you want to go into like Puppet Master versus demonic toys, but was that like a, uh like a sci-fi deal? Because I think they... they... It, it
2: was. Um, that was a strange situation because that was a TV pilot. And uh, there had been a deal made with a sci-fi channel, and I worked very closely with Tom Vitale, and they wanted... Uh, Charlie basically had licensed... You know, they'd been running some of the old Full Moon movies and had done very well. And so Charlie basically licensed uh, Puppet Master to them, and they wanted to do something that had more of, if you will, a tone like Gremlins
0: mm-hmm.
2: and an older lead. It was like they kept thinking uh, they were talking about guys like, um, you know, like Martin Mall or uh, Fred Willard or somebody. And mm-hmm. then with all this, you know, craziness around them. So that's the way I wrote it. And then it was just very strange because when Corey Feldman was cast... I was like, oh, okay. I didn't think it was a horrible idea, but I naturally assumed that I would go in and rewrite the script so it would be age appropriate.
1: Right.
2: And then that didn't happen. And they did that weird thing with him and the wig and all that stuff. And it was just it was just a strange, strange choice. I met I ran on to him later. We had a nice little talk about it, and he was very sweet about it. But but um you know, I mean, I thought Ted Nicolau did an incredible job on that thing. The, the You know, was shot back to back with the movie The Man with the Screaming Brain.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: The, uh, you know, thing Bruce Campbell deal. And right. I thought because I had put those things in, like the little uh, drones that went along the floor and all these. I didn't know if any of that stuff was going to happen. And they shot it in Bulgaria. And all of that was in the movie and Vanessa angel as the baddie was great and that, you know, some beautiful girls and all these great things, but it's like, look, let's make it actually work for our lead. You know, it's, it really was square peg round hole time. And, uh, but I was not, um, called upon or even consulted to go in and, uh, you know, kind of uh, reshape the thing, which I thought was a little strange, but that's just, that's the way it was. That was the way they wanted to handle it.
1: Oh, man. Yeah. I, uh, actually, uh, I watched that like way back, like when sci fi premiered it. And uh, I thought that was so cool because, like, you know, like I think that was back when like uh, Alien versus Predator was kind of, uh, and like, mm-hmm. Freddy versus Jason, you know, was kind of. Kind of a thing, so it's like, you know, well, let's let's see, like, what else could we could we mash together and and have them battle? And I thought like Puppet Master versus Demonic Toys was was a pretty cool choice. Well,
2: you know, I I think it could I I think it could have worked uh with the intentions that they had, but um yeah, it was it was just a weird situation. And uh uh but that thing, I'll tell you, Marks that thing has probably gotten uh, – it's amazing. The distribution on that particular title, I still see that thing everywhere. It's in every collection, all those th- things you see at the supermarket. And I mean, it just doesn't stop. <laughs> it, it has been relicensed and relicensed and relicensed. It's just its just incredible. Here, I'll, I'll tell you a, a quick story. I went in and pitched on uh, Freddy versus Jason – and uh, they were looking for writers and they didn't really have a nailed down concept. In fact, they really didn't have a concept at all. So when I came up with something. I discussed it with my manager, Catherine James. And we both thought, wow, I said, you know, this is so simple and so sleek, but I think it would really work. So I go in and I meet with Sean Cunningham, who was a nice guy. And I said, okay. Here is the thing, I said, Sean. You've had so many different origins and, and whatever. Why is Jason Voorhees this lumbering maniac? Because you've given a zillion explanations, and I said, he says, I I don't know. You tell me. He is a lumbering maniac because he was once attacked by Freddy Krueger and survived. Hmm. And for Freddy Krueger, Jason is the one that got away. Wow. That's how you bring them together. And everybody just, I I thought I had gotten the job. Because everybody was so effusive about, oh my God, that cuts away all the clutter. That would be great. We can do this. We can do that. And no, obviously I didn't get the job, but there you go. (laughs) So it goes.
1: Well, and it it's sort of similar to to what we ended up seeing. I mean, some of those elements were were true to like what they they eventually went with. Well, how about let's jump back to Class of nineteen
2: ninety nine? Okay.
1: Um, like I had said earlier, like that that one kind of that's one of those movies that kind of grew on me in sort of like became one of my favorite movies like it's it's so good like on all levels like it uh it almost feels like this could really happen
2: <laughs> well yeah unfortunately a lot of the stuff we kind of predicted uh actually kind of came to fruition sadly
1: yeah and... so like, i guess like where my question would be is like where like did did you help write this with Mark or was this like did you kind of have more of a, you know more hands-on on on this on this type of story
2: well uh, no I mean uh, uh it was a situation Mark had uh an idea to do a class a sequel to Class of 1984 and his partner at the time was the writer Stanley Mann uh who, uh, you know, I mean, Stanley was just, you know, incredible. I have the Needle and Meteor and The Mark and uh, Conan, King of Thieves and all these. I mean, he was a big boy and he was, he was great. And he had written Firestarter. So okay. they had their deal and they needed someone to execute a script and uh, they hired me based on prison. And uh, they had a treatment. And I remember that in the treatment the uh the robots kind of lived in like black boxes and were uh you know uh had cords running from them and everything else and it was it was very much uh a not really like a cyborg situation and uh not that you know they didn't have like a, hu- a human appearance really so i said look guys this is what we need to do and I wrote a new treatment and a new story outline, which was approved. And then I was on that script for quite some time. And Mark set the deal up at Vestron. And then uh, I was off and they brought in uh, some other writers to do revisions. Uh, and, you know, those guys got paid very well, but the revisions didn't settle. Uh, and Mark chucked them. Hmm. Chucked the whole thing, and then they rehired me. So it was a long process and, you know, other people back and forth and back and forth. And then I always ended up coming back. And then finally, uh, I mean, we really did end up just going back to practically the the very first script I wrote. Uh, We were in Seattle and uh, that was where we were going to shoot it. And, um, you know, I did uh, the final production draft based on our locations and all that stuff. The only thing we we lost uh, big time that I really felt bad about was the original idea was that when the teacher robots are all blown to smithereens, they kind of come together as like this spider type tank type deal. I wanted kind of like the ending of RoboCop Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and something like a Phil Tippett type animated super, you know, thing to uh, go chase down the kids. And, cool. Yeah, that, I, I thought that was a very good idea, and we and they kept trying to make it work and make it work, but uh, the budget just wouldn't support it. So, but Eric Allard, who did our effects, uh, said, "Listen, why don't we do something with a real, a, you know, metal robot with a skeleton, with a giant puppet, and we'll suspend it on tracks over the set and all this stuff." And so that's what they ended up doing. You know, you see that thing. That thing was real and uh, walking around in there. I mean, it was amazing. Oh, man. And uh, yeah, so but that was great fun. I was able to get my parents. Uh, they were in Seattle uh, on a business thing. And so uh, I took them to the set and that was the first. And so they got to watch the motorcycles going up and down the high school hallways and everybody shooting machine guns and all that stuff. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> and uh ugh. it was great fun and i ended up doing uh what six movies with mark after that something like that
1: mm-hmm yeah man yes yeah, uh i i loved that movie so much um um for w- stacy keech's character um his white eyes in uh and eating bananas was that like scripted or was that all improvised?
2: That was all Stacy. He came up with the um, uh, albino thing and all that stuff. he's so creative, and uh, I just love talking to Stacy because, uh, being again such a universal guy, uh, one day I said, hey how about uh, your dad is the dialogue director on uh, Sherlock Holmes and the secret weapon. He just about fell out of his chair and he goes, how did you know about that? And yeah, he told me all about being there uh, when his father was working on the Lon Chaney inner sanctum movies and everything. And uh, yeah, it was really neat. He was, he was, he was a great, everybody was, was terrific. Uh, I like Malcolm McDowell a great deal, but the guy I, I just loved john p ryan
0: mm-hmm.
2: oh my god i guess i've been such a fan of runaway train and all these things and uh he's great in five easy pieces and just uh you know all, all these films he did that just curling mouth and that presence you know and of course all the larry cohen movies it's alive and larry's daughter jill gatsby was in the movie
1: oh wow she's I didn't the know female that.
2: gang member yeah so they had a long history, and John and I had uh, rooms opposite each other in the hotel, and so I got to spend a lot of time with him. He was he was great. Uh, I uh, and the thing was th- this is you know such a tragic thing. John did not like to fly. In fact, I believe he had taken the train to Seattle, and he was going to come back. We were talking one day at breakfast. He said he was going to go back to L.A. and he was going to be in Dick Tracy the one Warren Beatty
0: mm-hmm.
2: and the movie got delayed. So he took a job on uh, missing in action part two. So here's a man who doesn't like to fly. He goes to the Philippines. They're making this movie and there is a terrible helicopter crash and he is in it. And I believe seven people were killed and John was one of the survivors. Oh, my God. And uh, they operated on him in the Philippines. He got hepatitis. And uh, his left arm, I guess, was pretty much severed and they reattached it. But it was uh, pretty much useless after that. And uh, when he recovered, he was in a few more movies like Hoffa and a few other things because he and Jack Nicholson were great friends. But I ran into him at a car wash in Santa Monica. And we had a great little reunion. And he kept his you know arm in his pocket and what have you but uh yeah i, I like john a lot he was a great guy pam greer is so ter- that was really exciting to have pam greer and every- i mean you know how could you not get excited that was just uh, it was just neat
1: right right yeah how did uh how did pam be- become like a part of like you know how did how did you guys get her on the film
2: well, you know, this movie had was made for some money. And Pam was, uh, I mean, she, it's not that she was out of favor, but she'd had some health issues. And I guess that they were a little worried about her again, insurance-wise. And Mark said, no, come on, let's cast her. And, you know, ironically, that Pam has always said, she's very sweet about it, she said that movie really reopened her ability to get hired again, which included Jackie Brown.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So she always credited me and Mark and everybody. So it's very, very sweet of her. Wow. Uh, but, yeah, uh, but she was great. And that was the thing. All of the, whether it was her or Patrick Kirkpatrick or, or, or John Ryan, uh, they all had to wear those special rigs that Eric Allard had constructed for the flame throwing and all the rest of that stuff. And boy, they were right on it. They were so cool about everything, and so cooperative, and uh, they really dug the effects. Of course, they didn't want to get hurt, but uh, boy, they just did it. And Pam will tell you, that scene where they uh, come out of Puget Sound,
0: mm-hmm. they
2: drive a car off the end of a pier, and then they end up coming walking out, they, well, you can kind of tell they're a little bulked up, because they're all wearing wetsuits, because it was absolutely like sub-zero water temperature.
1: So, like, they were actually in the car when it...
2: No, they weren't in the car when it went in the drink, but they were, you know, there in Puget Sound walking out of that water, and it was unbelievable. Yeah, she said it was just freezing.
1: Oh, man. Yep. Wow. Yeah, you know, like, and really, the whole cast was just perfect. I mean, everybody who played their characters, like, they, you know, I don't think it, it could have been any better.
2: Oh, well, yeah, I I just, and Eric was so great, because, you know, he had done uh, Chuck Russell's The Blob, and Mm -hmm. we were doing the big fight between the gangs, uh, and the teachers kind of get involved and and kill some of the kids, uh, Chuck, uh, or Eric said, hey, Courtney, let's figure this out, and we were looking at some, uh, said, we sat down with some storyboards, Bud Lewis was our storyboard artist, Uh, he was a really great guy, and... So we, he had the rig that would allow us to do the thing where the kid gets snapped in half and pulled through the wall.
1: Yeah, that was a cool scene.
2: It was great. And he had built it originally for the blob. And he said, no, I still have that in my shop. Let's We can make some alterations for this actor. And let's use that. So it was great. Everybody kind of would collaborate and bring additional things to it. And uh, that was just, uh, yeah, that was wonderful. And, you know, it's funny. I've been uh, asked questions about that movie in these past year or so quite a bit because Rose McGowan is in it. Really? Yep. Ooh, uh, she's, she? one, she's an extra, and she's one of the high school girls, and people have sent me frame blow-ups of her and all this type of stuff. And What was Rose McGowan like? I had no idea. I
1: wow. Yeah. Now I have to go back and watch it, just to see if I could point her out. <laughs> yep. Wow, that's amazing.
2: But uh, but also too, I mean, it, it's a you know, Mark. It is that kind of right place, right time uh, with uh, things like nine inch nails doing the music uh, and all that. I mean, it just things just fell into place. And um, one of the things I really loved, and this is kind of silly because, again, you you get excited about movie things and movie references. We did all the post-production sound at 20th Century Fox. So... Uh, we were there on the same stage where, you know, John Ford did How Green Was My Valley and everything. I was like, oh, my God. So <laughs> I <was laughs> paying a little more attention to the history that I should have. And Mark's like, we pay attention to the movie we're making right now? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Man, that's awesome, though.
2: But uh, that, that started a great uh, relationship and collaboration with Mark. And uh, we worked together many, many, many times after that. And. I guess we just fell into sync uh, because he felt that uh certainly in writing action and things like that, that I could write the way he would shoot it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And we'd have a conversation and on a movie like The Base or, you know, these other things that I did with him. uh, And I'd say, hey, Mark, well, I'm thinking about this scene or that scene. And he'd go, oh, well, look, let's, Let's let's try it this way or that way. And then I knew how to lay it out on paper so it would be absolutely reflective of the way he was actually going to shoot it.
1: Wow. Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty awesome stuff, man.
2: Yeah, it was neat it was neat. It was it was good. And as I said, I think we did, I think we did a total of six movies together.
1: Wow. And and they were kind of like uh you know, not not just like horror sci-fi, but, you know, more like towards like action. And
2: yeah, almost all of them actually were action. Um, we didn't uh, I wrote a few horror movies for his company I and mean, I was paid and everything, uh, but I think the only uh, but they weren't shot. I think the only horror movie I did for American World was not uh, for Mark. It was uh, Bradford May directed it. And that was Devil's Prey.
1: Oh, okay. I don't think I've seen that one yet.
2: And uh with Patrick Bergen and uh Tim Thomerson and uh Jennifer Lyons and uh and Brad of course also I mean he was such a fantastic D P. Uh yeah, I mean my god, the guy was a camera operator on Dirty Harry, Hey, eh? Come on. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and the outlaw Josie Wales. And then um Became a huge TV director of photography Simon and Simon and that type of thing and then became a very successful director He directed all the Dark Man sequels and all that stuff Oh, man, and uh, yeah, we I really liked him a lot and we worked very very well together But mark uh, produced that movie but didn't direct it But uh, so I was kind of the house guy in American world for a couple of years and uh, that worked out really well
1: oh, Interesting man um like before we trail off of Class of 99 um you know that movie must have been you know so much success uh successful that uh it spawned two more sequels um and it it was fairly different from the the first one um of of Class of 99 did you have any part in uh any of the sequels
2: Oh my now, here is a question I am thrilled to answer. Well, I'm thrilled to answer any question. But, okay. I had a meeting about writing Class of 1999, The Substitute. And I really, I needed the job. So I go up there uh, to, oh, gosh, I forget the company's name. Steve Carver did a movie for, for them called Cinetel. So I go up to Cinatel and I'm sitting there with a young lady who is their development person. And she's kind of, it's Friday afternoon, and I know that's always kind of a big danger signal anyway, because, you know, the people really are just waiting to sit out the traffic so they can go home. Mm
0: -hmm. But
2: uh, I'm there, and I'm, you know, we're on and on and on. And she's, like, telling me, well, you know, this is kind of, you really don't have... The qualifications that we're looking for for this project.
1: Are you kidding me?
2: I am absolutely serious. Now, what made it even worse is she had like a bulletin board behind her of, you know, for upcoming things. She had a flyer for the class of 1999 behind her head. My name was like sticking out of her left ear. Oh,
1: my God.
2: And I'll never forget it. And I was like, okay. Anyway, I went over to the smokehouse and fractured my American Express card with scotch and sodas. Uh, boy, that was a that was a rough one.
1: Oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, I can't believe that. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, and that and that ah, man, i was gonna say, and I think it shows because you know, obviously, those weren't as successful as Class of '99 um yeah you know, they they kind of went with like that whole like literally like the substitute like <laughs> like the, well, the they, other movie the substitute
2: you know i'm being a little unfair i guess because they were made for very little money and uh i'm aware of that and i know there were just all kinds of limitations when they made those films and uh you know that was that was fine i mean you know we they were not for theatrical release. We were, I mean, you know, there's just a lot of differences, uh, primarily for, you know, when you talk about budget.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it would have been awesome to see, you know, more of like, uh, like, like class of 1999, rather than kind of like, uh, well, we're just going to have one Android and, uh, He was a martial art kickboxer.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh,
1: But, you know, at at least we got a class of 1999 to watch over and over again.
2: And then they came out with that really, uh, I guess Shout came out with that really terrific uh, release. And the movie just looked sensational. And uh, it was really neat. I I, I have to say, Mark, sometimes like Dave Dakota and I did the commentaries on... uh, we did Puppet Master 3, or when I sat down with Tim and we did transfers. You know, this is the first time seeing these new transfers for the Blu-rays. And my God, I mean, the movies just look sensational. Uh, the best I've ever seen them look.
1: Right, yeah. Yeah, well, you know, like uh, Class of 1999, uh, the Vesteron Blu-rays just came out uh, not that long ago. And, man, the, uh, it's just...
2: That's it. The Vestron Special Editions. That's right. And, um, oh yeah, no, it was, uh, it looked absolutely terrific. And of course, well, look who our DP was. It was Mark Irwin. I mean, good Lord, you know, he's, that's Cronenberg's guy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, man. Oh, yeah, they look, they look so good, man. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's one thing that I like about, uh, um the higher quality HD type stuff is like, it's, it's giving these older films a new life. Oh yeah. You know, cause like, you know, we've, we've seen most of these older films on like VHS tapes, you know, like the, the quality isn't obviously isn't the greatest. So, you know, seeing them on these higher definition versions, it's almost like watching, watching it for the first time.
2: Well, particularly, uh, oh, no, I completely agree with you, particularly for movies like any of the, you know, the full moon stuff that was designed to be released only on video cassette. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And that's it. There was no theatrical life for those movies at all. You know, those went directly to the video store. So to see them kind of, if you will, yeah, reincarnated in this new medium and, uh, with all this new care and uh, uh, attention to the prints and everything. Oh, it's fantastic.
1: Yeah, I agree, man. I agree. Um, what, one thing that kind of, kind of stuck out to me, like (laughs) going back again, is that you were a script consultant for a movie called night screams.
2: Oh, good Lord.
1: So like, what, what was like a, Like, I'm, I don't know, I'm not like a, uh, what's the word? Like a, like a a veteran in in the film industry. So, like, I don't know, like, what is a script consultant?
2: In this case, it was the original screenwriter who got fired.
1: And then you took over, or?
2: No, no, I was the one who got fired.
1: Oh, oh, okay.
2: But (laughs) uh, I had done enough work on it and uh, the producer was a young kid he really he had never made a movie before but we kind of guided him along with stuff and answered a lot of questions and then i did a first draft of the script and he didn't like it and wanted to write his own so but they kept my name on the thing uh as script consultant really just because i answered all of his questions as best i could and then i banged out a first draft and there you go
1: oh okay i i'm sorry if i if i brought up like a
2: Oh, it's yeah, that not like that movie. painful a memory. It's fine. No, the <laughs> coolest thing about that is on that film, my name is script consultant is on the same title card as directorial consultant or editorial consultant Herbert L. Strock, who directed I Was a Teenage Frankenstein. And I knew Herb Strock, so that's cool. I love that.
1: Oh, awesome, man. Yeah. So. So at least, at least get some good. Oh, good. That. Yes. <laughs> awesome well uh i guess I'll, I'll dig into uh some of these other questions that i had that uh doesn't necessarily pertain to like some of the the films you worked on but uh what is or if you have a favorite what's what's your uh, favorite horror film
2: oh god yeah i i that's nearly i it's not nearly an impossible question i think it is an impossible question because There are so many, uh, you know, what had the most impact at different times in your life? What do you retain from certain things? I mean, I grew up in the 60s, so uh, the Universal horror movies were on television. Uh, Hammer films and uh, the AIP uh, later Edgar Allan Poe movies were playing in the movie theaters, along with things like Food of the Gods and frogs and dr fives and all that stuff so i was seeing all those things at kitty matinees and uh it just so there's just and you know wallowing in famous monsters of film land and marvel comics and creepy magazine and conan the barbarian and you name it so all these things had just so much impact so i mean literally it's like what was you know what scared you to death what scared me to death uh was the haunting. What scared me to death was the uh, uh, fright sequence from the Tingler. What uh, scared me to death was the first, uh, you know, Wolfman attack in the Wolfman when I saw it on television and, uh, or uh, the blind woman in the cellar in the house on Haunted Hill or, you know, on and on and on and on. And, uh, uh, you know, theatrically, the big impact, I mean, I loved, uh, oh my God, Uh, Frankenstein must be destroyed really sent me over the moon. I just thought that was tremendously good and I just loved it. I saw that when I was 13 in the theater and uh, I I just adored it. But I'll tell you, I was 16 or 17 when the Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out and I went with a friend and we saw it at a drive in and I was fascinated with. I think it's a wonderful movie, but I was so fascinated because it was regional filmmaking. And it was a kind of a whole new thing for indie filmmakers. Everything was kind of exploding. You know, of course, Night of the Living Dead had already happened. So there was a lot, you know, horror was changing. And Mm -hmm. so uh, to see there and look at this thing, and, you know, that movie just has great impact. But it's, you know, this is the thing that always drives me crazy when people think about that film is how gory it is. That movie is not gory. No, it isn't no, it just, it just is like a gut punch. And, um, I've just always, I've just always been fascinated with that film, uh, even with all of its technical inconsistencies and things, uh, which I think adds to the feeling of realism and, and everything. And of course, Jeff directed uh, the third one, but, uh, yeah, I really, uh, that film just had a tremendous, uh, impact on me. Uh, really, um, Really, just uh, you know, it it just kind of took my head off, and but then you know, so did I. Remember seeing Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time? I saw it in the theater, of course. And Jeff and Darren and I were still sharing a house. We hadn't. Uh, we were trying to get offspring made. And I remember I called them, and I said, "My God, guys, we got you. Got to come see this thing because it hadn't broken yet. It, it wasn't a big hit yet. And it's mm-hmm. like this. This is gonna just be, you know, gigantic. And of course, yeah, that didn't take." You know, the greatest, uh, you know, foreseer to predict uh, that future. But, uh, yeah, so I don't know. It's it's as I said, it's it's difficult because, uh, you know, you've got six decades of horror with me. And uh, so I could narrow it down. Let's I'll be fair and say I probably have a top 75.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) And, uh, you know. But I mean truly for the movie that had or continues to have just such a sweeping emotional impact and really makes you kind of go whoa and the discomfort because it's just so subtle and plays on your imagination is I think Robert Wise's The Haunting is still wins the prize
1: Oh wow! Yeah, you know, and like you know, I I ask this question a lot, just because like it really is hard to just pick. Like, man, I you know, it, it's almost not fair to to pick just one because there's there's just so many great well, especially movies. Especially if you things. love it. Oh yeah.
2: Because yeah, you love like, different, you know, you love different stuff for different reasons.
1: Right. Right know and, and and there's so many like different like sub genres of horror absolutely and uh and that that's kind of what my next question was going to be is like do you have like a favorite type of like subgenre of horror is there one that just kind of well speaks I, to I, you I, more? maybe
2: it's because being old-fashioned whatever, but i i i've always really loved uh the gothics and in any form Oh, my God. It, I was just an absolute slave to Penny Dreadful. And I have not seen uh, the new incarnation of it, uh, but I just thought it was spectacular. And that to me and in, in recent years, I, I thought I loved the lighthouse. I mean, that was just really a mood piece. But and I thought the witch was terrific. And that that's it. I mean, I'm I'm a sucker for period adventure and and period horror
1: right on it's 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 definitely an interesting type of type of genre ish if you will like it's i definitely love like the eeriness to uh um and just how dark like the witch was
2: oh uh, and you know what i thought was really cool in the witch was they made no concession at all To If people didn't completely understand things because of the the accents and even some of the vocabulary, it was just that adherence to a reality, uh, I thought was just wonderful. Mm -hmm. And and it's just, again, it's just something like, you know, look, what was I watching right before we got on the horn? I was watching The Revenge of Frankenstein. I mean, you know, I it's it's funny because uh somehow to me peter cushing and christopher lee really don't look right in modern clothes
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can you see know, that.
2: Now they're the they're the 1880s you know that's just it
1: <laughs> yeah or uh christopher lee is saruman or you know in like some some mage robes or something, you know? He, oh yeah, he
2: exactly. He yeah. yeah. It's, uh, they, you know, they, there are certain actors who belong in those worlds or are comfortable in those worlds. They seem organic to them. And, uh, you know, those guys and Vincent Price and then, you well, know, Boris Karloff and everything, they they were, and that's what, uh, and two, I think, you know, we're always partial to what we first, uh, you know, discovered, and those were the guys that I first discovered. They were my first movie stars. They were the first ones in the films that I liked.
1: Yeah, right on, man. Um, I guess uh, we got maybe a couple more questions here. Um, What is your favorite horror script that you've written so far?
2: Well, I have a, uh, a couple that were never made that that I like, uh, and uh, I hope one day to get get a couple done. But uh, of the movies I've had uh, produced, I would say probably uh, I think Prison is the is the one uh, that because uh, you know I've done a lot of whether it was Puppet Master three or some other things. You know, I have in fact done things that kind of blend genres, mm-hmm. and even *Lurking Fear* is a crime horror mashup. You know, uh, I think I did it better in *Prison*. Uh, of course, *Puppet Master 3* is a war movie horror mashup. You know, and so right. I kind—I of, I, like—I like doing that, but uh, I just think uh, uh, *Prison* just as as a movie, top to bottom. Uh, I just think it turned out well, and uh, I think it looks spectacular. And uh, so I think that that really is the is the is you know the favorite with Whisper to a Scream really running neck and neck because uh, thankfully the way that worked out, uh, I got to write dialogue for Vincent Price.
1: Wow, and that's amazing. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, how many people can say that? You know.
2: Well, there aren't many of us left, so yeah. <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> I didn't mean to put it that way. But. No, no,
2: no. You know, Richard Matheson comes, you know, screeching out of his grave like a scorched cat. You know why?
1: <laughs> oh, um. Let's see, my other question is: um, Are you currently working on any projects or like any any movies that you're working on?
2: Well, you know, I've, I've been focusing so much on the novels. I had the uh, the sequel to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Nemo Rising, come out. And then that's been optioned uh, for television by MPCA. And we'll see if that goes. And then that spun off into a game from WizKids uh-huh. and Miga that came out last year, and that did very, very well. And, yeah, I... Uh, I uh, am working on a project with uh, Alvaro Rodriguez, uh, you know, wrote Machete, uh,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, The Hangman's Daughter, Dust Till Dawn, and produced the Dust Hill Dawn television series. We're working on a pilot together, and I just had a big uh, book come out uh, called Western Portraits. This is what I collaborated with Steve Carver on, and it's a spectacular book of uh, portraits and images of uh, great uh, character actors. Uh, that Steve took, uh, wonderful photographer. So he took all the pictures, and I wrote all the words, and uh, that turned out that's turned out very well. That just came out this past Christmas, and the things too are. And then I'm also always doing all the uh, documentaries and the commentaries. I work a lot with Daniel Griffith at Ballyhoo. We've, and I've now, I guess, done about 120 of them. Oh. Wow. Uh, Commentaries and then on camera stuff, and uh, lots of westerns. I have uh, Taza Son of Cochise with Rock Hudson coming out from Kino. I have How to Make a Monster. I uh, did that with Daniel for uh, Shout Factory. Uh, I did, I'm doing War of the Colossal Beast for Shout, that's coming out. Uh, and then we also, Daniel and I, we produced the documentary, uh, and then he did a spectacular job putting it really. I mean, he's the engine at Ballyhoo Pictures. But I get to collaborate with him and then also did uh, some writing and and the commentaries for a new Blu ray set of the Lon Chaney Jr. Inner Sanctum movies from uh, Universal. Oh, wow. That's coming out from Mill Creek. And uh, that's just turned into a mega project. It's really neat. It's really turned out well. So I love to do that stuff. So I'm still. And oh, uh, a documentary that Daniel did that I'm in is on the new uh shout factory uh universal horror volume four uh it's a documentary we did about uh, rondo hatton
1: oh wow yeah i'm definitely gonna have to check some of these out man
2: yeah that just that just came out a couple of weeks ago so so you know even if it's time if there's a lag between books or movies or whatever that i always fill it in i hope with uh commentaries and documentaries and i just did daniel and i work together all the time and uh that's really worked out really well and so uh uh, we did a thing again we i mean he's again he's the guy that i kind of you know that i come along and we're we're a great team i think uh but uh mark of the beast uh on uh the recent release of American Werewolf in London is, was the history of the universal uh, wolfman uh, werewolf movies. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you saw that from this this new uh release of American Werewolf, but uh, we were really proud of that. That turned out really well.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, I haven't uh I still have like uh oh, like the collector's edition DVD and I still got like my old uh VHS version of it and so I haven't really seen I, I any know. of the <laughs> newer
2: yeah, it is kind of like triple dipping, but if you do feel like going for the Blu-ray, this is the Blu-ray to get, and uh, yeah.
1: Right on, right on. Yeah, for sure, man. Um, there was like, if you have time for one more thing. Um, sure. I, uh, I did write something about, um, in my notes here, uh, it worked on a movie... Or you acted in a movie um, Scream Queen With Linnea Quigley
2: And Oh god <laughs>
1: um, I, I mean I, I think that one's more of like an Obscure type movie because I I've never really heard of that one Before
2: and No that was a thing I knew uh, the, the guy who was trying to do it A uh, uh, filmmaker named Brad Sykes And um Brad was trying to get a little feature going. It's very, very low budget, but he had written something for Linnea, and uh, I know Linnea quite well, and she's, such, she's just so such a doll. She's just such a nice person. And I went to her and told her, explain the situation, and we were kind of helping Brad out, and she was so sweet about it. She so said, sure. So, you know, uh, Linnea starred in it, and then, you know, just folks that we could recruit to come in and do things uh for free. Uh, that's what we did. And uh, nice. I've never seen the finished thing, but uh yeah, that's, that's what that was.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those films where I think it, it's really hard to find unless you probably got a copy from someone who, who had worked on the movie. <laughs>
2: yeah, it'd be Literally that would be it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, very cool, man. Um Is there, as we wrap this show up, is there anything that you'd like to to plug in or promote? Um,
2: well, you know, again, anything? we're just kind of uh, the, the new, uh, as I said, my, the Western portraits, unsung heroes uh, and villains of the silver screen. I'm very proud of this book. It just uh, turned out so beautifully. Uh, and it's a big coffee table book. And, anybody's any interest in westerns or their grandfather does or their dad does and they're looking for or their mom does for Mother's Day and they're looking for something uh, please grab that and then also look for uh, all these new uh, DVD projects we have coming out and uh, like like the inner sanctums and please keep your fingers and toes crossed that uh, uh, my, that uh, we do something with either Nemo rising or uh, what I'm doing with Al Rodriguez so uh, hopefully we'll Hopefully we'll, we'll be able to reconvene here in about a year and uh, I'll be a TV mogul.
1: <laughs> awesome, man. Well, hey, thank you so much. I I really appreciate you coming on here and, and talking about some of these films. And, and oh, uh, no,
2: Marcus, thank you for asking me.
1: Yeah, no problem, man. You know, like, like I mentioned before, like class of 99 is uh, it's, it's not like a, a, a sleeper hit, but like it it's one of those movies that, you know, it's not like Alien or Predator. <laughs> no,
2: you, you
1: know, like it's not <laughs> like those movies that stick out, but it, it's it's still one of my favorite movies, man. Like it, it really is just well made all around the spectrum.
2: Oh well, thank you very much. Well, I, I wish I could take more credit for that, uh, but uh, it uh, no, I'm very proud to have been a part of that one, and uh, I I really love that movie. And I I've been I've just been very lucky uh, that my experiences with movies. I hope to have more experiences with movies. Have been uh, you know I've been so good.
1: Right. Yeah. Man, you've definitely worked on a lot of awesome stuff.
2: <laughs> and oh, thank you.
1: So that was my interview with C. Courtney Junior. I just want to say thank you so much, Courtney, for coming on the show. It was an absolute blast, and uh, it was just almost surreal. Like my mind was blown. Some of the things that you're talking about. So it's really cool to have you on, man. And you know, I keep talking about Class of 1999, but yeah, that really is one of my favorite movies. And uh, and you know. It's, some of the other full moon films that you've worked on it's just you know it's just really awesome to to talk to you about them and uh, you know i love the puppet master series and uh i'm a big fan of the hp lovecraft films especially the ones that full moon had put out in empire pictures um and you directing lurking fear um was really cool to uh to talk about I don't know if, if some of that made it on this episode uh but uh maybe I'll have you on again and we can talk more about Lurking Fear and uh some of the other movies that we didn't get to really dive into um sometime in the future I mean who knows um but yeah uh this is a <laughs> really fun episode to do and uh I'm just—I don't know. My mind's just blown in general by all these guests that I've been having, and it's kind of hard to to keep up with <laughs> with uh, you know with all these awesome guests. You know, it's like I, I gotta I gotta be on my game, and uh, hopefully I answered or not answered, but I hope I asked some good questions. And you know, sometimes I, I kind of doubt myself when I ask. Guess questions, and I feel like maybe I'm not asking the right ones, but I'm just kind of going with the flow when I ask questions. And uh, yeah, I, I always second guess myself and think that I need to ask better questions, but I mean, it is what it is. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. Um, I, I do plan on doing some solo episodes. Um, I'm thinking about doing the killer cockroach movie, The Nest, from the 80s. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite 80s films, for sure. Um, or, like, Zombie Holocaust, another Italian horror film. I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of a toss-up. I don't know which one to do. Maybe you guys can email me at roothorror@gmail.com at or... Message me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We just got a Twitter. Uh, for some reason it's not Root Horror Podcast on Twitter, it's Horror Rude So I don't know what happened there, but I guess that's my Twitter handle. Horror Root for the Root Horror Podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, Instagram and Facebook, you can reach me at Root at Horror Podcast. Send me some some su- I might go with one of those two I haven't really quite decided um, My next guest is going to be Mike Petchy He is a Director I was going to say movie director He's d- directed one short horror film Which we'll be talking about that one And uh, He's also done a bunch of music videos For bands like Killswitch Engage Fear Factory Meshuggah I'm just naming off bands I really like but yeah man I'm really stoked to to talk to him Um, in a couple days actually so I don't know when that episode is going to be aired but that one will be coming soon and uh, stoked about that one looking forward to it so that about wraps up um, my episode guys thank you all so much for listening and I hope you guys are digging the content that I'm putting out for you guys I just want to mention Deathstitch Custom Clothing. My my buddies over at Deathstitch Custom Clothing offer one hundred percent handcrafted, handpicked, and painstakingly matched upcycled T-shirt flannels, bags, as well as other handmade surprises that you might find at some of their sh- at some of their shows that they attend. They're also making horror-related face masks, so. Message them on Facebook or Instagram or email them at deathstitchcc at gmail.com for more info on how to obtain their products. Or you can hit them up on Instagram at deathstitchcustomclothing. Also want to mention Midwest Monster Fest. Midwest Monster Fest is a horror and pop culture convention happening September 5th and 6th at the Rust Belt in East Moline, Illinois. They will be having a horror-themed cosplay contest with prizes, effects challenge with prizes, horror-themed pin-up contest, and movies going both days. So it's going to be jam-packed full of stuff, guys. 70-plus booths with celebrities and vendors. Some of the celebrities announced are CJ Graham, Linnea Quigley, Tom Matthews, Tamara Glenn, Mark Price from Trick or Treat much much more guys tickets are on sale now at MidwestMonsterFest.com also follow them on Facebook and Instagram at MidwestMonsterFest and I do want to mention while I'm closing this episode I'm drinking a Hand of Doom Blueberry Variant from Wake Brewing and man I gotta tell you this is delicious stuff guys they're really killing it with these stouts, so go check them out, man. They're a brewery in Rock Island, Illinois, and they are the go-to brewery in the Quad Cities. If if you dig metal and horror, you're definitely gonna you're definitely gonna love Wake Brewing. They're right up your alley, guys. So um, check them out at wakebrewing.com or go to Or go to uh, Facebook or Instagram, Twitter, at Wake Brewing. Check out their beer selection and take advantage of their cans to go carry out on Saturdays from noon to 3 p.m. And uh, definitely check out their beer if you're ever in the Quad Cities. And uh, that about wraps it up, guys. Just hit me up on social media and uh, let me know what you guys are thinking. I did do a short run of pre-order t-shirts that uh, some of you have bought so I just want to say thank you guys so much and uh, I want to thank Ryan Wells for being our first subscriber and uh, or I should say uh, um, supporter first supporter on uh, through the Anchor app uh, thank you so much man your support really really, uh, helps the podcast, man, I, you know, I just, you know, to help better with, with future episodes and, uh, possibly going towards for more merchandise and, uh, and whatnot. So yeah, thank you. And, uh, thank you everybody else who shares and and likes the page and, you know, to spread the word about the root horde podcast and let me know what, uh, what you think. I should do next so with that being said I'm going to sign off here thank you guys for listening so much
0: you have been listening to the Rude Horror Podcast if you like this content and would like to hear future episodes Please follow or subscribe, if you dare.